Hello, Microbial Nation, and welcome to another episode of The Micro Moment, that show that takes you down to the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. I'm your host, Tess. And I'm John. And today we're talking about monstrous microbes. We're going to get a little spooky because it's spooky season. That's right. This is spooky season in America. So, to keep in the festive spirit, we have created monstrous microbes, where we take 13 classic Halloween creatures and pair them with 13 monstrous, although many are not so monstrous, microbes. Today, we will dive into just two of these, but if you're looking for all 13, you can find them at microbigals.com. That's M-I-C-R-O-B-I-G-A-L-S dot com. In today's episode, we will share two stories of New England's nightmarish micro moments. Are you ready, John? I'm ready. We've really been looking forward to this one, too, because, well, one, we love Halloween. Love it. So love it. And two, New England is our people. And three, who doesn't love a good witch and vampire story, huh? Yeah, those are going to be great. But first, John, what's your favorite fall festivity? Um, hmm. I would say the fall drinks, really. Do you have a particular one that's your favorite? Um, to be honest, like anything pumpkin, like coffee, stuff like that, that's my favorite. Although, no, I take that back. Apple cider donut, that's the number one. Yes, apple cider donut, some apple cider on a warm, warm apple cider on a cool fall day. I love it. Ultimate fall festivities. Mm. It may be a hot and toddy, too. Ooh, yeah. Hot toddies are great. Yeah. But we also have another holiday treat for y'all. It's our Bloodsucker Breakout. It's the only virtual escape room, at least to our knowledge, that tests your microbial knowledge to survive. Here's a little flavor of what's in store for you at Bloodsucker Breakout. The year is 1986. You just got your first bookshelf for your new place. Assembly required, you read, rolling your eyes to go get the toolkit, dumping out the screws and nails, you match them to the instruction diagram. How hard can it be? You shrug before you start. After a few hours, you realize it can be really, really hard. You're just about there when, ah! The bookshelf topples over, crashing you and pinning you to the floor. Should have just spent the money on real furniture, you think as you black out. Blink, blink. Your vision is blurry. You hear a constant and rhythmic beeping. A heart monitor? A hospital? But who brought you here? The doctor isn't in, but something else is. Run! You jump inside the first unlocked door you find. Slam the door shut and lock it tight. Your heart's pounding. All you wanted was a bookshelf, a simple bookshelf. Now you're dealing with some blood-sucking doctor in a building that resembles more of a catastrophic morgue than a hospital. You shut your eyes hard and take a few deep breaths, trying to gain your bearings. When you open them again, you realize you are in a morgue. No, wait, it's a laboratory? But those aren't real body bags over there, right? Couldn't be. Yikes. You realize the only way out is the way you came in, and it's guarded by your bloodthirsty attacker. Briefly scanning the room, it appears whoever was here was a researcher. And, from the looks of it, the researcher was trying to find the cure to, well, whatever that thing is that was chasing you. You'll have to put together the remaining pieces of the puzzle to protect yourself and get out of here. So that's our little sample of Bloodsucker Breakout. If you'd like to try your hand at this virtual escape room, all you have to do is sign up for our 
newsletter, which we will link in the show notes, but you can also find it on microbegals.com. Right, so we have to go back to our Monsters Microbe series. Is there anything else we're missing before we begin, John? Hmm, I don't think so. I think that's all the businesses we have. Oh, wait, if you'd like to support our show or show us a little bit of love, please consider donating to our Ko-Fi page. Or, if you can't give but still enjoy the show, please consider sharing the podcast with at least two of your friends. It will really help us grow. And we love to grow. We do. As fast as microbes. Just as fast as microbes. Okay, okay, let's get on with this. Let's get on with it. Okay, but wait, I want to pumpkin spice up this episode with one more game. What's that? The Micro Moment of Mysterious Murders. Okay, how do we play? So, here's the rules. I have a famous person who was mysteriously murdered, possibly by microbes. I will give you three clues throughout the episode about the person's morbid micro moment, and your job is to guess who it is. You want to play? Let's do it. Cool. Okay, so I'll start off with clue number one, and then I promise we're going to jump into witches. So clue number one. This person wrote about murderous micro moments with a story about the powerlessness of humans to evade the mighty microbes. No matter how beautiful your house, how luxurious your clothing, or how rich the food, no one can buy their way out of a pandemic. Do you have any clue who it could be yet? I don't, actually. I'm kind of stumped on this one. All right. Well, you keep thinking as we talk about the Salem witch trials, and we'll see if clue number two helps you at all to figure out who this micro moment might be. All right. All right. So we're going to take a spooky trip down memory lane. Nearly 500,000 microbial generations ago, where politics, religion, bratty kids, social injustices, and perhaps a microbe or two caused 25 people to lose their lives accused of witchcraft. That's right. We're discussing the Salem witch trials on today's micro moment. Let's go back to Salem, Massachusetts in the summer of 1692, a time before the United States existed. It's actually about 70 years since the Mayflower brought the first pilgrims to America in 1620, and it will be about 84 years before America officially becomes a nation. So they're kind of in this limbo stage where they haven't really figured out who they are, what their purpose is. They haven't really figured out what their bearings are in this new land. Boston is still growing into the bustling city we know it today. And Harvard was there, though mostly a place for ministers to be educated. Just outside Boston was a little town called Salem, where two girls, age 9 and 11, claimed to be possessed by the devil, causing mass hysteria. This resulted in the end of a brutal and unethical hanging of 14 women and five men for being witches. One person was even crushed to death, and five others died in jail awaiting their sentencing. So this was a traumatic time for the young colony, if you can think about it. They didn't quite know where their place was in the world. New England was a brutal place, not only because of the weather, but also the constant feuds with the land's previous owners, the Native Americans. Not to mention the feuds among themselves. We're talking it's only about two or three generations of pilgrims in the area right now. So they're and they're such a small community. Everyone sort of knows each other and knows each other and, and has started to create feuds amongst themselves. And then I just want to talk a little bit about where science was at this time. Uh, it was basically non-existence as, as well. A lot of 
anomalies, a lot of things people didn't know they could chalk up to witchcraft or to some religious devil coming in, right? It is not so much that they didn't have they didn't have the scientific knowledge that we have today to kind of solve their problems or to understand why their problems are occurring. So it was a very young colony driven mostly by politics and religion. So I think you can see with everything that's going on, it can be easy to drive the masses to hysteria. Or maybe this had to do with bread, but we'll get to that later. Regardless of what caused the Salem witch trials, whether for political gain or quite literally from the root of rye, it's completely horrifying how far this witch hunt went. But witch hunts are not a new thing. Salem did not invent this. They've been around for centuries, starting from the 1300s. It would be between 1580s until the 1640s that the height of witchcraft scare occurred in Europe, witches became the go-to scapegoat for the unexplainable. It's cold. Must be witches. The crops all died. Must be witches. My daughter died. Must be a witch. And the finger-pointing of witches always went to those just outside the popular society. Any of them accuse a witch of turning them into a newt? Nope. No. I don't, well, I mean, maybe, I don't know if it ever really happened, but I don't have any accounts of that. They probably had better excuses. <laughs> so witch accusations existed even in Salem before the Salem witch trials, but never to the caliber it did in 1692. In fact, there were several people who were accused of witchcraft, escaped the noose, only to find the accusations to rise again in 1692, and that time they wouldn't be so lucky. So, what caused the Salem witch trial? What caused Salem in Massachusetts to become the witch city that it is today? A popular tourist destination, even. What does this have to do with microbes? And why are we talking about it on the microbe moment? These are all questions I will answer soon enough. But first, I just want to point out just one final thing with witch hunts. Even if you look, even, we can look back at the 1600s and realize how far behind they were from us and how little science they actually knew. But even in our current political field, you will see that politics and religions and family feuds always seem to stir up the absurd and throw science to the wayside for personal gain and the excitement and fear that engross the community during a witch hunt can certainly happen even in today's more science-driven society. Before we jump into the microbe theory, let's give a bit of more background. This is by no means an in-depth assessment of what occurred in Salem in 1692. If you're looking for a more in-depth, deep dive into the Salem Witch Trials, may I suggest Aaron Mankey's podcast on Obscured Season 1, which is about 20 hours of Salem Witch trials and he does a really remarkable job at really explaining everything but I do suggest coming with a pen and paper for that podcast because you're going to need some notes I think but here's the short version back in colonial Salem Massachusetts the population was small like any community there are feuds but because they're so small the feuds feel astronomical there were two feuding families the pious Putnams and the Porters Religion was also very important during this time. You see, the first Americans were part of this very strict religion known as the Puritans, and they thought they were creating God's kingdom on the hill in Salem town, making them very pompous and constantly thinking the devil was out to get them. During this time, there was also a schism in the religion. 
A new form of religion was opening up known as the Halfway Covenant, which was more open than the original church. Then, of course, there was the young minister Samuel Paris, who quickly grew greedy and stirred the colonial pot. Samuel Paris split the town into pro- and anti-Paris fractions. And Paris's daughter, Betty, and niece Abigail would be at the center of this whole thing when they started to have convulsive and ugly fits that tortured the town. They would scream, contort their bodies, throw things, and complain of strange sensations, like things crawling on their skin or pinching them. This is what caused the Salem witch trials initially. But what could have caused this behavior? They brought the girls to a doctor who came to the conclusion this could be nothing other than bewitchment, of course. Sound diagnosis. I think so. To put this into a little bit more of a perspective of where we are in microbial history, the Salem Witch Trials, as we've said, occurred in 1692, not even a decade after Antony Van Leeuwenhoek published the first sighting of our microbial world in 1683. So this is at the very, very beginning of understanding of microbial existence, which I think is always very interesting to put it back into where we lie in the microbial history. But time and time again, what scares humanity the most is not witchcraft, but it is the unknown. As a species, we are quick to put fingers even if in our hearts we know it's wrong, because at least there is a physical entity to cast our anger, insecurities, and anxieties onto. And we just went through this with the coronavirus, if you can remember that far back. I know it seems like ages ago. But even though, even today, when we had the culprit, we had this virus, we could blame our insecurities, our anxieties on too. Many people still pointed fingers at Wuhan. Many people still were prejudiced against people of Asian descent. And so luckily this didn't get to the witch hunt status we saw in Salem. But it's just very interesting or sad almost to see that we really haven't moved that far in the last 340 years. We, as a society, often don't try to come up with solutions to our problems, but figure out ways to shift the blame to others so that we don't have to come up with the solutions. That's what happened in the Salem Witch Trials. So much like the early days of 2020, out come the theories and conspiracies as to who or what were causing these little girls to writhe in pain in such torturous ways. One member of the community tried to come up with a solution, she was convinced she had the answer to the girls' fits. What was this answer? So she decided what the girls needed was a witch cake. A witch cake? Yes. So a witch cake has a very special ingredient where you take the afflicted girls, the people who have been bewitched, you take a bit of their urine and bake it into a cake. Mmm, that sounds yummy. Yeah, I don't really know how they come up with this stuff. But then they did something else where they take this cake, baked of the girl's urine, baked with the girl's urine, and feed it to the family dog. Well, at least the girls didn't have to eat this cake. Yeah, but the family dog did. Y yeah, it's, it's not good overall. And so I was trying to figure out why they, they thought feeding it to the family dog was the best idea, and I really couldn't come up with a great answer to it some people believe it's just if you take the urine it has some of the bad spirits or the bewitchment in it and you feed it to something else in this case the family dog then 
the bad spirits would have a new vessel to to torment. But again, why would you do it to your family dog? I know dogs are awesome. Don't make dogs the de- the decoy. Yeah, we need our fur babies. This, of course, uh, enraged the minister who was the father of the two girls. How dare someone bring a witch cake into his house as he is the one who speaks to God. And so this made him very angry. Couldn't have any of that in his house. Needs to be a Puritan house. Exactly. So the girls, probably eager to keep the attention going, and under the pressure of pointing fingers to who was the person who bewitched them, named Tichiba, the family servant, as their tormentor. And thus the hysteria began. Fingers pointed to those that did not go to church, to those that did not get along with the Putnams, to those that were less fortunate within the community, to anyone with a less than squeaky clean pass, or to anyone who could not live up to the strict and impossible standards of the Puritan lifestyle. If you weren't with the Puritans, you were against them. If you were not 100% committed to the church to make the city on the hill the new kingdom of God, well, quite simply, you must be conspiring with the devil. So almost everyone then. Yeah, I mean, it really didn't take much to point a finger at someone without, I mean, who has a squeaky clean background anyways? No one. No one. Yet, the whole society was driven to madness over the words of two tweens. It still seems utterly absurd to me. Like, even today, no one listens to tweens. And back then, like, women didn't really have much of a say in society, especially compared to today. Yeah, it's interesting how, like, their word became so uh, paramount in all this. Yeah, and I think that is what a lot of people always question like we can say politics and religion played a big role in spreading witchcraft but how did this really start like were they all on drugs or something maybe some people think so but we will have to hang on to that thought for a brief moment because it's time for clue number two of our murderous micro moment give us clue number two what is it Okay, here's clue number two. So this person mysteriously died at the age of 40, and the cause of death is still an enigma today. Possible causes of death include diabetes, heart disease, epilepsy, tuberculosis, alcoholism, and even rabies. Oh, and death by voter fraud. Okay, I'm completely lost with this one. Do you have any further questions with any of that? Uh... I don't know where to start. <laughs> I mean, there, there's a lot of possible causes, so that's a wide range right now. Yes, it is a wide range, but do you have any idea what time period we're thinking of? Um, okay, uh, are we talking about the 1800s by chance? Yes. Cool. How did you come to that conclusion? Um... I'm coming to that because people don't exactly know what the cause of death is, but we're seeing some modern day terms, including diabetes and tuberculosis. If it was earlier, I'd, those would be under different names. Mm, very good sleuthing, John. I have my moments. So still no guesses on to whose murderous micro moment we are talking about? Not yet. All right. Okay. I think the third clue... 
makes it a little, makes it a little, I think it's the easiest one. I put it at the end just for that. All right. Can't wait to hear the third clue. We are talking about monstrous microbes today, but what about alien microbes? Truparia radiovictris, Allobacillus halotolarians, and Immatechula halotolarians are not from outer space, but they are alien to the human microbiome. This week's episode of The Micro Moment is brought to you by Zymo Research, who offers products for the complete microbiome workflow, including spiking controls, consisting of unique species alien to the human body, enabling absolute quantification of microbes. Check out Zymo's complete microbiome product portfolio at zymoresearch.com. So, Back to the Salem witch trials. What could have caused this behavior? So even after going to Salem and listening to Aaron Mankey's 15 plus hours on the Salem witch trials, I still have so many questions about this. I can sort of see how it continued on with the religion and the politics and the finger pointing and the people that were able to gain sort of new roles in society by being part of this. But how did it start? Where did these behaviors come from? There's still an air of mystery shrouding the Salem situation. What caused the Salem witch trials has been a question asked even by scientists of the world today. Do you know what some of the theories are, John, of what could have caused the Salem witch trial? Um, I've heard like several things like possibly encephalitis or mm-hmm. maybe there were cases of epilepsy because the girls were going into fits, which would kind of yeah. like um fit that or even as bad as child abuse. Mm-hmm. Others have cast shade on the unseen world by blaming this hysteria on a microbial motive. Perhaps it was Lyme disease or maybe even ergot and rye, which I think is one of the more popular theories on what started the Salem Wish Trials. So what is ergot and rye then? So let's start with what ergot and rye is not. It is not a microbe that turns you into a witch or compels a witch to turn you into a newt, nor will it make you weigh the same as a duck. If you get it, you get it. If you don't, well, you know. But on the other hand, what it can cause is ergotism. This causes hallucinations, fits, muscle spasms, and convulsions. It causes you to feel like things are prickling on your skin. Sound familiar? Sounds like those uh, two girls so far. Yeah, it's very witchy behavior indeed. Ergot is a fungal blight commonly found in rye bread. And perhaps it was an ergot in rye that was the culprit of this madness. At least that's what Linda Corporeal thought when she published her paper on ergot and rye theory in 1976. So, how does one little microbe cause mass hysteria and manipulate a town to turn against itself? I don't know. How does it? When you ingest ergot, it is poisonous to humans. It can cause convulsive ergotism or gangrious ergotism. Some of the other symptoms of ingesting ergot and rye include 
vertigo, sensations that something's crawling on your skin, or an extreme tingling feeling. In the cases of ergotism um, that causes dry gangrene, you can lose blood supply to your tissues, which would change the color of your skin, eventually leading to the loss of limbs and eventually death. Headaches, hallucinations, seizure-like muscle contractions are all also symptoms of convulsive ergotism. So many of the symptoms that I just listed have been symptoms that the afflicted girls did possess. And rye was very common in pre-colonial Massachusetts. But was ergot in rye? Ergot is not in all rye. It needs very right conditions. These include a cold, wet winter and a damp spring. Does that sound like New England to you, John? It sounds exactly like New England. Yeah, it's like us on the daily. So, ergot is something that has been around for a very long time in human history, as far back as the 9th century, I believe. It is sometimes called St. Anthony's Fire. It's caused mostly by claviceps. The claviceps is a fungal group that, has, that is devastating to plants, parasitizing on at least 600 different plants. That's quite a wide host range. It sure is. So often the spores are carried by the wind until they find their new plant home, which could be rye, wheat, barley, or any of the other 600 plants that it calls home. They reside in the ovaries of the plant, where they form hyphae and candida. Once it starts to grow in the plant, claviceps produces scleratia, or ergot which are purple-black growths that contain ergotamine and lysergic acid, which replaces the normal grain. And you can see this fungus on grasses in real life. If you look at a grass where there are some seeds, so not usually the ones that you can find in your yard, but in a prairie-like setting, you might find very long grasses that have seeds at the end. You can see some of the seeds might be a little curled, a little darker in color. They might look a little bit like mouse poop. This is the ergot. This is what claviceps produces on the grasses. And this is what can be very poisonous to humans if we take that grass, take that rye or barley, and mill it together and to form bread. Then this is how you can ingest ergot. But this fungus is not all bad. There are some medical uses for this fungus as well. Did you know? Actually, no, I didn't. Claviceps have been used for their medicinal properties and gynecology and obstetrics. Perhaps as far back as 1100 BC, it was Adam Lonsier, a German botanist in the 16th century, where we can start to see written use of herbal medicines for women um, using claviceps. So what he said is you should, women should use three claviceps scleratia to induce a uterine contraction. Up until the 19th century, ergot was used as a crude drug to control uterine bleeding, irregular contractions, uterus tumors, and prevent miscarriages. But it never turned the birthing mothers into witches, mind you. But also, definitely don't try this one at home. No. Not an herbal remedy, I would suggest. Yeah, just like mushrooms, they can be very dangerous. In the 20th century, scientists really began to pick apart pieces of the claviceps, isolating its compounds like ergotoxin, ergonamine, lysergic, and isolysergic acid. Does any of those sound familiar to you, John? Yeah, the uh, lysergic acid. Is that like, is that LSD or close to it? 
Yeah, so LSD is one of the most hallucinogenic drugs. And the L in LSD stands for lysergic acid. Yeah. So LSD ha- is derived uh, from this lysergic acid produced by cleviceps. So that's a little bit about ergot and claviceps through history. Back to the Salem witch trials. Wild accusations kept many of the townsfolk quiet as the Putnams and other continually brought people to court. The wild accusations kept many of the townsfolk quiet as the Putnams and others continually brought people to court. I think in the end, it was something like 150 people were accused of witchcraft and jailed. The first to hang was poor Bridget Bishop, followed by five others barely a week later. A group of ministers warned about leaning on spectral evidence too much, but they didn't really define what too much was, which I think was a problem in the Salem witch trials. Many believe there was a political hands at play that also drove this event. For instance, if you were in jail, your property could be seized. John Corwin, the deputy to the general court, made quite the profit off the witch trials. They even talked, they even killed someone by the names of Giles Corey by pressing him to death by stone over a two-day period. Man, that has to be one of the most uncomfortable ways to die. I mean, two days yeah. with weight being dropped on you constantly? Yeah, and do you know what his very last words were? More weight. Yeah, which I think there's just something very New England about that. Like, just being stubborn and, like, you want me to do something, I'm going to do the exact opposite thing because I do what I want kind of New England mentality. It encompasses the New England spirit. Yeah, not to mention he was often called rude and brash and not very friendly. Very New England. (laughs) I also remember hearing things like they had to put his tongue back in his mouth because there's so much weight being pressed on him. Yeah, they like someone took their stick and shoved his tongue back in his mouth. Yeah. Like that's absurd. Who does that? So rude. Anyways, the finger pointing continued and uh, uh, throughout the summer of 1692. But eventually it went too far because the witch hunters accused the governor's wife, who quickly decided these people's fun must come to an end. Which I sort of think like Governor Phipps is perhaps the most, the biggest villain in this story. Is it because he was so complacent for all of it until the end? Yeah, he was definitely doing things that benefited him the most, and it's only when things stopped benefiting him that he decided to shut this thing down. Not because it was immoral, not because people were dying, not because it was driving the society to madness, but because it was no longer benefiting him. Yeah, it's pretty villainous in my opinion. What a politician. But there were others that spoke out. In the early days, as early as the first trial, judges were resigning from the Salem witch trials. Neighbors stopped going to church because, I mean, how could they? As their other neighbors were pointing fingers at their family, their family was being hung right in front of them. How could you go to church with those people again? I don't know. The tensions would be way too high. I can't even imagine the tension that was in the air during this time. 
And one thing that I didn't know that I learned from the Aaron Mankey podcast was that Thomas Brattle, who was a prominent man in society, was actually pretty influential in bringing the Salem witch trials to an end. He once wrote, I think this is all which ought to be allowed to these blind, nonsensical girls. And if our officers and courts have apprehended, imprisoned, condemned, and executed our guiltless neighbors, certainly our error is great, and we shall rue it in the conclusion. There shall be hell to pay at the end. Indeed, indeed there was. And the other thing that I always was very confused about was the Mather family. So there was increase in Cotton Mather. And if you know anything about the Salem witch trial, you probably heard about Cotton Mather before, but you may not have heard about his father, whose name was Increase. So they were a father-son minister, and they stood at opposite ends of the debate. And they were both whispering in the ears of the powerful men that they had in their, their group. And it was actually Increase who wanted to put an end, Increase Mather, who wanted to put an end to the Salem witch trials, particularly on the spectral evidence. And it was Cotton who was more of a people pleaser and would kind of flip-flop to whatever side deemed more appropriate for him, whatever would be less confrontational, I think. But uh, it's okay because Cotton Mather does have another shot at being in the spotlight of another epidemic of pre-colonial Massachusetts, Massachusetts of mass hysteria over the unseen world some 30 years later. Do you know what I'm talking about, John? Is that the smallpox outbreak that occurred? Yeah. So Cotton Mather would find himself at the center of the smallpox outbreak of 1721 where he would listen to a slave named Onsimus on the procedure of urulation. But that's a story for another time. The intensity of the Salem witch trials lasted throughout the summer of 1692, but started to lose interest by the fall, and by 1693, the whole thing was over. So, after all this, I ask again, what caused the Salem witch trial? Were they all eating poisonous bread all summer? Do the hallucinations of Irrigat and Rye really make you point to specific people in your town as witches? I don't know, does it? I don't think so. I don't believe that Irrigat and Rye can be blamed for Salem shame. But Irrigatism could have played a role in some of the witch hunts throughout history. Irrigatism caused strange and unexplainable symptoms, giving people reason to accuse each other. It should be noted that the Irrigat theory is just that, a theory, and it's actually not accepted by all historians or scientists. The Salem witch trials were far too targeted to be Claviceps doing. I think the most accepted cause of the Salem witch trials was political pressures and mass hysteria that was happening. The, the religious aspect of creating this kingdom on the hill of God and being surrounded only by those, the devil trying to take you down. I think this kind of egotistical thinking definitely played a huge role in causing and propelling the Salem witch trial to where it was. Right, and there's only a few people in the community that were writhing around or showing symptoms or you know, accusing others, what, spectrals that were attacking them? It wasn't a lot of people, right? Yeah, exactly. It wasn't really that many people. And you would think that if it was the rye bread within the society, then a lot of people would be having these sorts of symptoms. 
But I think there's also just like what we see with COVID, not everyone gets the same symptoms for the same amount of time. So it it can be really hard and challenging to look back 340 years and try to figure out what was going on, especially when all of the writing, they can't, they don't have the words to really express or explain what's happening. But I think there are quite a few discrepancies in the theory that does sort of put enough holes in it to make it not the culprit of the Salem witch trials. For one, as you said, only a few girls seem to be afflicted. For two, the whole shenanigans lasted over for for a good amount of the year, right? So we started in 1692 uh, and we ended in 1693. So it's like a particularly long amount of time. And the final one, of course, is that the people that were being pointed to as witches were those right outside the society, were those that the people who were afflicted could gain a certain amount of political power or religious power in society if their enemies were put away. Regardless, it's enough of a theory that it persists today. And so that is why we paired Argot and Rye to the Halloween monster of witches. And what I also could never figure out is what really happened to Anne Putnam or Abigail Putnam. Uh, These girls that kind of came up with these convulsions and started pointing fingers at people. Like they are very much the ones at the center of this Salem's shame And yet, I don't think they ever had to face consequences for their actions. Kind of just faded into history, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, as far as I can tell, the only thing I can really find is that Anne Putnam did have a confession that she gave in 1706, where she said, I desire to be humbled before God for the sad and humbling providence that befell my father's family in the year about 16, or a year about 92, that I then being in my childhood should be such a providence of God that be made an instrument for the accusing several persons of grievous crime, whereby their lives were taken away from them, whom now I have just grounds and good reason to believe they were innocent persons, and that it was a great delusion of Satan that deceived me in that sad time. So even here, she's like, it's not really my fault. I was possessed by Satan. I understand they're innocent, but I'm not going to take, I'm not going to take the responsibility there. Yeah, that kind of removes the guilt of all that happened away from her too. Yeah, which like goes back to what I was saying at the beginning. It's like, it's so much easier to shift the blame than to accept it. All right. Anyways, are you ready for clue number three? Let's hear it. I think this one's, you're going to get it. Here we go. Clue number three. This 19th century poet's soul may have been black as death, but it was the white plague that eventually took not only his mother, but his wife as well. Okay, that's, that illuminates a lot of it. Do you have a guess? I'm going to guess... Ding, ding, ding! You're correct. Edgar Allan Poe is this week's murderous micro moment. Did you like that game? Sort of fun. That was fun. I was pretty lost until the end there yeah those are good clues thanks came up with them myself well microbial nation that's the end of our show if you think you know whose micro moment we've been describing with these three clues you can let us know by sending us an email at microbegals at gmail.com or you can add us on twitter facebook or instagram at microbegals that's m-i-c-r-o-b-i-g-a-l-s 
And John, what are you bringing for us for next week's micro moment? Well, you already mentioned it. It's the white plague. And for those that don't know, that is also tuberculosis. But we're going to look more of how that influenced the fear of vampires in New England. Ooh, that's going to be a good one, I think. I'm really excited for that. And if you don't want to miss it, remember to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We hope you keep enjoying the show and keep listening. Until next time. Bye. Bye.